0: This is a FrightFest 2014 special of It's the BritFlix.com podcast. This is a FrightFest 2014 special of It's the BritFlix.com podcast. Welcome to another BritFlix.com FrightFest preview special podcast. My name's Stuart Wright. And today I've got with me Ivan. Say hello, Ivan. Hello. And Ivan, you are the, um, is it writer-director of The Canal?
1: Yeah, I wrote and directed this, yeah.
0: A, a masochist and a sadist all at the same time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's autobiographical, by the way, so, um...
0: <laughs> I'm sure it is, I'm sure it is. Well, before, before you tell us your life story, then, tell us a brief synopsis of The Canal. <laughs>
1: Well, it's actually quite a hard film to talk about without giving too much away, but I'll give you a very, very brief synopsis. Give it's a about chance. a um, cinema archivist mm-hmm. who suspects his wife is cheating on him, and then in work he discovers a film from 1902 which tells him that there was a murder in his house back then from a, by a guy who also suspected his wife was cheating on him. So it goes on for there, and I can't really say anything else because there's a lot of twists and turns in there that that would really give the game away.
0: No, no, that's that's a, that's, that's a first setup for the uh, for the story, and um, and to sort of pitch it in and amongst all the other um, all the other fair at Frightfest, fest. If fifty fifty is equal parts scares to gore, what would you say the ratio is of the canal?
1: I say it's more scares than gore. But that, there's one or two, maybe three, three scenes that are extremely gory and kind of make up for the lack of gore if, you, if, you, if you're kind of a, a gore lover. But um, <laughs> there's one particular scene at the, at the end of the film, towards the end of the film, gore-wise, that always gets even the most hardest fans of that, that kind of stuff.
0: No, no, I, can, I think I can, uh, I can safely vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when and where is it showing at Breakfast?
1: Well, it's showing on Friday the 22nd at 8.45, and it's on Discovery Screen 1.
0: Cool. So that's a good good time to be having
1: it. Yeah, it's a a good slot, I think. It's my first time at Fife Fest, and I've heard so much about it over the years, you know, so I'm really dying to go. Uh, Robin Hill, the editor of of, uh, the canal, he's been going for years, and he's a big fan, so I'm going to meet him. It would be great to see him again. I haven't seen him since we finished the film.
0: I'm a big fan of Robin Hill's.
1: Yeah, he's a great guy. So I, was, I I edited all my previous films and um so I was a bit nervous working with another editor, you know. Yeah. I just, and um but I really loved his work with uh, Ben Wheatley, you know, especially on Kill List. Of course. So um I was we had a chat. He's a really nice guy and it was one of the best collaborations I ever had with with anyone out of any department, you know. He was so inventive and I wanted to really push the editing and be quite experimental with it, and, and he was just as willing to go as far as I wanted to go with it, you know? It was what? really... I hope, I hope I get to work with him again. He's a great guy.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and he's uh, he's not bad on screen, either. Last year in uh, The Borderlands, he was...
1: Uh... Borderlands was great. Um, I saw it uh, while we were um, editing the film, and I thought he was great. I thought the end of Borderlands was fantastic, really. Wasn't it know? just... It was really shocking. I thought, you know, it really got me. It really reminded me of um, the ending. Really reminded me of of Mr. James. You know, the, the the ghost stories. Something about it. It just felt really got you in the gut. I thought it was great, and uh, and Robin was so likable all the way through it. You, you just, it was, it was just. That's what made it extra shocking. I think. I really like Borderlands.
0: No, no, me too, me too. Um, so let's get back to the cadet. And thinking about if we if we rewind you right back to when you were. Uh... When you were starting to write this, what compelled you to write, Canal?
1: Well, I made another uh, horror film back in t- 2007 called Tin Can Man. Yeah, and it was a festival hit. You know, I made it for about 800 euro. Wow. And uh, but I loved the freedom of working in horror. You know, you can really push the medium. You can re- you can do absolutely anything in in editing wise um acting wise uh special effects everything you can really push it you know and sound especially i love working with sound and i was just dying to get back to to the to the genre you know mm. and also some of my favorite memories of watching films as a, as a kid have been we're watching horror films you know yeah so um i, I just i just love it um, my two previous films before this were um dramas and i suppose you'd classify them as art house but um I, I just love I, I just love film you know I'm, I'm not a film snob at all and I just I was just dying to get back to make another horror film and also make something that maybe stayed with the audience long after they had seen it you know sort of hit them in the gut and maybe they they remember it or think about it days after you know and for me I love films that are divisive as well that 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 that. Um, don't give any easy answers. They're a little bit ambiguous, you know, and, and, and people are in boat camps. They either love them or hate them, and, and um, some of my previous films have been like that, and they're the kind of films that I always remember, you know? And, um, yeah, I was just dying to get back to the genre. I love it.
0: We've had um, we've had Andy Stark, the producer, one of the producers on um, Kill List on, on the oh, yeah. podcast, and he was talking about the, what they now call the Act 3 deniers of Kill List.
1: That's right, that's right, yeah. Well, I, I was talking to... Um, to a couple of friends of mine, and um, I, I'm, I love Kill List, I love the ending, I, I love all of it, but um, they absolutely hated it, you know, because of the... I think it's because they, they felt that, that, that the film fooled them, you know, that yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was way ahead of them all the time, you know, that, uh, and, and that's why they didn't like it, and, and, and they took that as, a, as an affront, you know, as they were really angry, and I think that's great. I think if a film makes people debate... Even if they hated the film, that's great. I mean, it's very hard to do in you know these days. These days, people are quite desensitized. I think to to, to films in general, but um, and it's very hard to shock anyone. But um, that's why I love Kill List. That it was so divisive, and um, they're exactly the type of films that um, I, I remember from when I was a kid.
0: So you you were you were um, you were itching to get back into horror. So what was it specifically that? that sort of compelled you to write The Canal? Where did that? Where was that idea born out of?
1: Well, I always wanted to make something about a cinema archivist. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of silent cinema. I'm just a, a cinema lover in general, and I wanted to work with 35mm again. And also, I wanted to recreate those old films, which is what we did. We used the camera from 1915 to make these old... Uh, uh, um, archive films that he finds, you know. So yeah. I was dying to work with celluloid and digital and have them both side by side, you know. Mm-hmm. And also as well, just just to maybe put some of my own fears into the film as well. That um, um, I'm kind of a neurotic type person, so I have a lot of fears. So it, it was it was kind of weaving those sort of things in there. And also, um, there's a lot of uh, the dialogue between early in the film between the father and son. That's the direct, direct lift to my own childhood. So there is little tiny bits of autobiog- autobiographical stuff in there as well, you know. But um, there wasn't one specific thing. It was a lot of stuff that wanted me, that, that made me begin writing this, you know. I don't know, what, I can't remember what the exact starting point was, but it was, it, it, it was along the lines of wanting to work with cellulite just one more time and also just itching to get back to the genre.
0: And in, and in terms of sort of constructing it as a screenplay, what were were some of the hardest challenges for you sort of resolving to to tell a story visually
1: it was keeping the ambiguity I think was the main thing and the level of ambiguity as well you know that if you give too much away it kind of kills the mystery but if you hold back too much people lose interest and they feel cheated a bit maybe you know and uh, also, as well, I mean, when you're in a development situation, you you have to listen to other voices as well. You don't you don't have to go, you don't have to do what they say. But also, you have to kind of reassure people that it's okay to be disambiguous. It's okay to leave people with a little bit of mystery, to not give them the full answers. But that was the main, um, that was the hardest thing to to resolve was, are we giving too much away here or too little? You know, and there was one scene in particular, that. Um, uh, that was in that i I knew i 'd never keep it in because it gave it too much away, but just to reassure the financiers that if need be we'd have this scene in, and that will explain everything you know if need mm. be, but we cut it out as soon as uh, as we had the chance you know because once you give everything away, the film disappears, so it was the ambiguity that was the main thing I wanted to keep
0: and what was i mean let's let's focus on the positive what was what would you say was um like the the, um, the most helpful note you received in that kind of process of getting feedback on the script from all the different stakeholders
1: um maybe maybe it was uh, my films are really character studies you know or or were in the past and this one is a is a bit like that you know yeah. and are very character driven so maybe I had a little bit of that in, and it was also trying to keep the beats of the horror beats in there as well. So that was good as well to to, to always um, maybe say to people that this film is quite deliberately paced. It might be a little bit slower than you than you're used to at the very beginning of the film, but just to keep little um, hints in there that don't worry, the horror is coming. You know, mm. and um, it was th- it was that little note from people. I can't remember who said it exactly, but. I thought that was a good one. And also, um, uh, talking about that scene as well um, that gave everything away, um, there was one note that, uh, and I knew I knew this person was right and I knew I was right about cutting the scene as well, they called it, to, it took place in a garden and this woman comes to the house and she explains everything about what happened and this person called it the Garden of, of Exposition and uh, once I heard that I said, that's it, exactly. I'm right about this. This has to go, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. There's, uh, <laughs> there's no bigger clues than that, is there? If, if, if a scene gets nit- gets framed as being the exposition dump.
1: Yeah, the garden exposition. Actually, that's the best note I ever got. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so, when, when you start to, started to plan the film and you had your scripts as locked as a script can be, yep. in these circumstances, um, obviously, um, finance isn't infinite. Um, no. What what were um, what were the aspects of the shoot that that, that seemed you know on page the ones that filled you with the dread but actually, you know you you overcome you, you, you overcome them with this that the other so what what how, what were the kind of things that you were able to to break through with the script that you might have thought on paper you were thinking how do I do this
1: well it was really really ambitious the script and I only realised that when we got to the shooting you know <laughs> it was it, it was a fairly low budget but it was a, it was just under a million euro I think you know yeah. But it was really, there's a lot of... I want to do everything practically, you know. There's a lot of prosthetics and uh, very, very little digital um, stuff in there. So that kind of stuff is quite expensive to do. But it was just about surrounding ourselves with the right collaborators, you know. Yeah. Um, With people who were ambitious and um, who wanted to... wanted to work as hard as they possibly could for a very little money to get the results, you know, yeah. And with this special effects was um, with uh, the prosthetics, we I found a company called Bowsey Workshop mm-hmm. and they're a very young company in Dublin and they're just absolute geniuses uh, at this kind of stuff. And, and they, they found this as a, re- they took this as a real challenge. And the way I said it was I wanted to shoot all of these violent scenes as if the camera wasn't blinking. I didn't want to use editing. I just wanted to watch these horrible scenes. And so they, they had to come up with a way of creating these effects that it looked like it was actually happening before our eyes, you know, and using very, very little digital altering to it, you know. That's also as well, the DP, the DP as well, the and every department worked extra hard on the very little budget. So it's it's always about the collaborators, you know.
0: It was an interesting turn of phrase, as if the as if the camera wasn't blinking. I mean, what what, yeah. what inspired that thought?
1: I don't. Know, I think it has more shot. I think people are used to, you know, um, rapid editing, and that's one way. It's perfectly valid one way of, of creating violent scenes. But also, at its heart, this film has quite a serious. The end. When when you know the ending it's quite a horrible thing that actually happened, you know? Yeah. So I didn't want to belittle that. I didn't want to make... I wanted to show it for the horrible thing that it was. And and also, as well, there's one scene um, in particular, there's a stabbing towards the beginning of the film, and it's really, really visceral and violent. And the best way to do that, I find, is is when the camera just stares straight at it uh, and, and you don't cut away. I mean, uh, Michael Haneke is the, the king of that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he His camera is definitely unblinking. It's just stares that and and doesn't turn away it's fearless you know and i just needed this 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 violence scene to be as violent as possible so that way i didn't have to put much violence in the rest of the film and there's not really that much violence until the very end you know yeah but but the film the, the the scene in particular at the beginning of the film is so visceral and so violent that it casts a shadow over it a good shadow over the rest of the film and you have this feeling of dread in your stomach you know and there's other stuff to add to that as well, like the, the, the sound design as well, um, add to that feeling of dread, which is the main feeling I wanted to convey, you know. And how,
0: how did you go about collaborating with your. I mean, did you, did you. I can't remember now. Did you use an original score for the film? Yeah,
1: it's yeah, so an original score. Um, I love avant garde classical music, you know. So um, yeah. me and Robin laid down a lot of um, avant garde music, you know, Yeah. as a guide track. And then I found this composer, um, a um, Welsh-Norwegian composer. Obviously, it's a norwegian
0: composer.
1: Yeah, (laughs) good combination, you know. But uh, his name is Kerry Torgensen. But he's he's done a lot of uh, film music, but he also did a lot of concert classical music as well, avant-garde stuff. And that's the stuff that really attracted me to it, because I knew he could give me what I wanted. I didn't want a a traditional score. I wanted a real avant-garde score, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean... Something you know, I love Penderecki. All these guys, um, and I love the score from the Devils as well. You know, the the Cameron Russell film, and uh, this 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 film that or a score that almost works like sound design as well. You know, it works hand in hand with sound design. So, um, the I think uh, when Kerry gave me a sample of what it was, um, and I I said no, that's definitely that, what what I don't want. I said I want something that doesn't sound like um like film music, and that doesn't you won't be able to even recognize the instruments, you know, it's like noises, basically. And he came back with this test piece, and it was just perfect, you know, so we went with that, and after that, it was an amazing collaboration, I think I accepted almost everything as it came in, with minor alterations, you know, but um, I'll definitely work with Kerry again, he's, he's, he was amazing. And did you, did you
0: sort of give him, was it like scene for scene, or was it was it kind of like, this sequence needs to go up, down, and down, and up, and things like that, are you...
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, me and Robin um, laid down a pretty complex um, sound design and score all temp, um, but it was pretty complex and complete. So, when you watched the um, the rough cut of the film, you had a pretty good idea what the film, the tone of the film was going to be like. Mm. So when I then showed that to the sound designer um Asa hand, and I showed it to Kerry as well, and I said, just follow the beats of this score. Don't copy it, but follow the mood and the beats. And that was a great guide for them. I mean, it was literally that that guided them through it. And also, I spotted the film then, with Kerry and Aza, and um, we just we, we actually we spent as much time on the uh, sound editing, and the music as we did on the picture editing, um, which was a really which is really a long time. I, I think in you know traditionally in filmmaking, people don't normally do that.
0: And and with your uh, with your DLP then, thinking of your, your your want to do this thing about a film archivist, then also. Play with um, celluloid as, as part of the process of making this movie. Yeah. That mixture between sort of um, um, analog film and digital film. Um yeah. What was what was the conversation there about how you wanted the the overall look and feel? Because I guess because I guess digital does have its own its own thing going on, but obviously you can do a lot with the, taking the colours out, putting the colours in, turning them up, and all that kind of thing. Yeah.
1: But the amazing thing about uh, celluloid, about film, is. That um, you hardly have to do anything to it once you get the look that you want, you know, because mm. it comes out of the camera looking amazing, you know. But <laughs> with, 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 with digital, you really, really have to work to get the look that you want, you know. Yeah. You really have to work in the grade, and but with, with with film, that's the easy part, you know. It comes out. I mean, what I love is is all the imperfections, the the um, the, the the grain, especially, and and also the. Um, that's what people are losing now. Yeah, the cameras are getting more and more pristine. The image is becoming more and more pristine, but we're losing something about. I mean, film is about the imperfections. It's about the grain, and you know, it's. Um, I mean, that's that's what I. That's why I love working with it. And also, uh, Pierce McRae was the uh, DP. And he just he just uh, relished the opportunity to work in a film and also to get the look that we both knew that we wanted to get. We wanted to get it precisely looking like these old films. And we used um, some of the um, Lumiere films from um, 1898. Oh, really? And one in particular called Feeding the Baby. Right. The famous one where you can see it. But there's something about the nature of the way the trees move in the background that... I could never get, uh, I tried with 8mm, 16mm, me and Pierce, we tested it, Super 16, regular 35, we tried Bolex cameras, everything, but we could never get the look of the movement of these trees in the background. There's something about the the hand-cranked old cameras, you know? And then by pure chance, I I found this collector in the UK, private collector, who who collected these old uh, hand-cranked movie cameras, and he had this one from 1915, and apparently it was used during the First World War to to um, film some action in the trenches. And we just ran some 35, the slowest speed, the uh, 35 mil stock that we could find mm. through this camera. And when we got the test back, me and Pierce knew, exa- knew instantly that this was it. It was It was just amazing, you know? So uh, if I could, I'd shoot everything in film. And, um, but digital is getting better. And if you work at it, you can get that filmic look for sure, you know. Also as well, me and Pierce, we wanted a retro type look with the digital as well, mm. as much as possible. And um, uh, so maybe something like f- from the 70s or something like that, you know. So we, lo- we actually use older lenses from the 70s and we mounted those on the, the the Red Epic camera. And it gave us a very, very different look than you normally get with the Red Epic
0: Okay, now that's that's more what I was getting at. I mean, it was an interesting story there, but I was thinking more of obviously if the lion's share of it is shot digitally, how do you you know how do you you balance that look and feel because it does it does seem to have from what I remember watching the film back in May, it does it did have a, a certain sort of presence to it on screen in the the, colour, yeah. the choice of colours and the shades and stuff.
1: Yeah, well, the thing about um, when you when you when you um, just to juxtapose black and white and different film stocks and um, color is that the color really pops, you know. Yeah. When, when, when it suddenly appears, you know. Mhm. There's a certain point in the film where the line between reality and films and his mind blurs, and all of a sudden this red image pops onto the screen um, in the middle of one of these films, and it always gets people visually, you know. And what we did as well, we 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 kept um, we, we used a lot of primary colours as well with the colour stuff, so the reds and the blues and the uh, and a little bit of green that really popped off the screen, you know. Mm-hmm. So we worked really hard with the colour palette as, as well. And I never forget seeing um, when I was uh, very young, I saw um, JFK on the screen, and I remember the diff. I mean, if you haven't seen JFK on the big screen, um, it really is a different experience when you see all those film stocks mu- um, mixing, you know. Yeah. You, when you see modern 35 stocks, which looks which look like digital today because they're so pristine, yeah. but and then when you mix that with the older 16 mil and 8 mil, oh, it's amazing, you know. And and um, a lot of uh, say a lot of the editing and performances like that as well, where um, the Nicholas Rogue, Donald Campbell film, where where they mix different film stocks as well, and you have color, a little bit of black and white. And uh, that was something I really wanted to experiment with, you know? Well, no, no I think,
0: I, I mean, Don't Look Now is a great example where, you know, obviously just the simple use of that red coat every time it oh, appears. Yeah. It's, like, it's, like a, it's like a bleacher beacon, isn't it, on the film? It's amazing.
1: I watched that recently, uh, Don't Look Now, and that was a definite visual reference for the, that kind of gritty 70s look, you know? But um, in every single shot, there's a piece of red. In every shot. Is there Really? I watch it again. Every yeah. single shot. There's a little, even if it's only a speck. It might be just um, a fire extinguisher in a corridor or something like that. But in mm. every single shot in the film, there's a tiny bit of red. It's amazing.
0: And I don't think that's an accident,
1: do you? Oh, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Nicholas Rogue talks about this. Um, uh, this story he tells about um, seeing a painting in a museum, and uh, I think it was a, it was of a naked woman, and and she and one of her nipples was. He said it was bright red. You know. Yeah, and uh, the production designer thought this was a bit distracting in in the um, in the shot, so she covered up it. But he said it was amazing that that the painting just seemed to disappear before their eyes when this this little tiny splash of red paint disappeared. You know, it's amazing what even a little bit, what controlling the color in a a frame can do. You know, and how emotionally it can uh, it can affect people as well. It's amazing.
0: So earlier on, did you say this is going to be your first time coming to Fright Fest or just the first time you filmed?
1: Uh, No, it's the first time ever at Fright Fest, you know. Um, I haven't been to London that much. Um, I live in Dublin, but um, uh, I love going to London, but I've never been to Fright Fest, but I've heard so much about it over the years, you know. So so you're going to be be at Fright Fest for your film? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm I'm, um, looking forward to it. Um, I haven't seen uh, Rupert Evans or Steve Oram or Robin Hill, and they'll all be there, so I'm looking forward to seeing them again.
0: Excellent, excellent. And, and you've got, uh, obviously, the, there's a reputation that that, that uh, seems to go before the films now of uh, of the Frightfest audience. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, plenty of the uh, American filmmakers who have who, certainly come in recent years have talked a lot about this at the Q&As after their film. And really? Sort of wanted, yeah. Wanted to, and, and, even, and last year was even more interesting because they, they got Mark Kimo to come down to watch the latest uh, in the Child's Play series. and. In his, in his reviews afterwards, he sort of talks about the fact that in addition to um, parent and baby or elderly discount days, they should have horror fans-only screenings.
1: Yeah, certainly. that's true, that's true, yeah. I mean... um um, I've been to a lot of those fantastic fests um, all over Europe, you know, and yeah. um, there's, there's, there's a certain type of that kind of passion that they have for, for the genre. I love that, you know. And I've heard that Robin was telling me as well, Fright Fest audience are like that as well. They're so passionate about it that they they await this all year. And you can see it on Twitter as well people mm. speaking about Cat Wait. They have their films marked out. It's great to have that passion, you know, it's amazing.
0: So, so with that in mind, then, what I mean, without maybe giving too much away, um, what 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 are you most excited to see? The white the the, the fright fest audience seeing your film. What are you waiting to see happen when you're watching the film with them?
1: I, I love sitting at the back and just seeing them. Well, there's the obvious thing like um, people when people jump at, at 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 scary scenes, you know. Yeah. Which is yeah. always good. And there's one or two scenes in this that always gets people, you know. Also as well that I hope that they're just uh, they're emotionally invested in it. So, because the film works best when people are invested in the characters and the ending works especially well if people really are are into that, you know. And also, hopefully they get a lot of the... um, some of the humour in in there as well because there's there's a lot of... um, there's a little bit of humour in there as well and also as well, um, there's a lot of um, awkward humour as well that I was really after as well. This uneasy um, um, laughter as well, you know. And also as well... um, just that they're enjoying it, and you can feel when an audience is, is enjoying it. It's it's a tangible thing in in, in a room, you know. Um, and also as well that we get good questions after, and that's always a good a good, um, a, a good uh, gauge of whether people really enjoyed it or not, you know. And it does start a debate, you know.
0: So you're gonna you're gonna, you're gonna be taking a Q and A as part of the part of the screening then.
1: Yeah, as far as I know, uh, we'll, we'll we'll go up on stage after, and um, Steve will as well, and also Rupert.
0: So, can you just remind us again? Then, when when, when is your film showing?
1: It's on Friday the twenty second at eight forty five, and it's on Discovery Screen One. And that's the, f-
0: the film, the Canal. Brilliant. Um, now, when I get people on, especially for Fright Fest, because I can't always do this um, for uh, for every filmmaker I've on, but for Fright Fest, I can ask this question. Because yeah. uh, we're Brit flicks, um, uh, we uh, I like to get recommendations of uh, British films, so okay. it seems to fit in that for Fright Fest I'd ask. For, for filmmakers to recommend a British horror film that they feel is maybe a little underrated and deserves a bit more kudos?
1: Well, you know, I always find that when a, a British horror film is good, it always rises to the top, you know? Mm. Um, so I can't think of any recent ones offhand. I mean, there's the obvious ones, but it wasn't underrated. The, my favourite of recent years was Kill List, you know? But that's a very obvious one. But there's one I discovered uh, just very, very recently, which I never even heard of. People might say, well... Um, It's it's a famous film and it probably is. It's by William Wyler, you know he did Ben Ben Hur and stuff, and it was starring Terence Stamp. It's called The Collector.
0: Okay, I don't know that
1: one. It was made in the '60s and it's about this um, psychopath played by Terence Stamp, and he kidnaps this girl and he keeps her in his basement. And it's absolutely brilliant. You know, I've never even heard of it. And it's no, made probably. in the 60s. It's well worth checking out. It was made in London and in the height of swinging 60s. And you get that air about it. Yeah. But this is a really dark film. And it's one of Terrence Stamp's best performances. He's just absolutely amazing. And then, of course, there's, there's another, another obvious one. And I don't think it's underrated. But maybe enough people haven't seen it. Is It's uh, Night of the Demon. You know, the Jacques Turner film made in London in the 50s.
0: Very much so, very much
1: so. Oh, I love that film. I, I think... Um, wasn't Sam Raimi's film? It must have been based on that, surely. It was. Uh, it's very close to it, I think. You know, that well, uh, yeah, the slip it. of paper and and the curse on the person. And, uh, oh, you
0: mean Drag Me to Hell?
1: Drag Me to Hell.
0: Yeah, wasn't yeah,
1: it yeah, very? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. It's it's very close, I think. You know, but I think actually it's it based on an M.R. Uh, James story called it is um, indeed, yeah. Casting the Runes. I think it's the name of it, but. Um, uh, I love that film. It's a great atmosphere, and, and uh, that's one I remember from when I was a kid. I think it might have been on movie drama, actually, you not know, the Alex Cox series.
0: I think it was because there was that there was that whole debate, wasn't there? About oh, I think he introduced the debate about the um, oh goodness gracious, the um, the conflict between the American producers and the uh... oh yes,
1: they they wanted to see, He never wanted to show the demon, but they made him do it apparently.
0: But apparently, that's a myth. I've got I've got, oh, really? a book, I've got a book called Beating the Devil, which if you can get your hands on, is a good read, which is about the story of Night of the Demon. Yeah. And Alex Cox talks about in in he's, he does the foreword for it. Okay. And uh, he said there's a bit of a myth that the the basic reason apparently was the the reason to have the American producer was to yeah. get around British censorship laws. Oh really? Yeah 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 because the the, the British censor at the time had um, goodness gracious, what's the what's the uh, had. Had, had sight of theatre and film and TV, you know, was really sort of, and, it, and you could, you'd have to go through a lot of hassle and they figured if they got an American producer in, that was the easiest way to avoid British censorship because they, the, the Hollywood producers didn't have any truck with it. Wow, it's amazing. I love that film, it's great. No, it is, it's a good one, it's a good one. Now, do, do you have an official release for, um, for the Canal yet?
1: Yeah, yeah we, well, we have an American uh, US release date, which is, I think it's October 10th, I think. Okay. And it's, it's a theatrical release in, in America. And then, oh, um, well, we have a few offers on the table for UK and Ireland, but um, the producer, Amory Nocton, is in the middle of negotiations for that. So we should have an o- announcement pretty soon, I'd say. But um, yeah, so it could be should be coming to the cinemas and VOD and uh, VOD and uh, DVD and Blu ray and Betamax and whatever else there is. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that's brilliant news. Well, thank you, uh, Ivan Cabinet, the writer and director yeah. of the Canal. Thanks, Manif. This is a Frightfest 2014 special of It's the Britflix.com podcast. This is a Frightfest 2014 special of It's the BrentFlix.com podcast.